Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Taken from Matthew chapter 6. These are the words of Jesus. And as I read them this morning, may we all open ourselves up to the way of Jesus and allow our hearts to be transformed by his Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people whenever they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. But truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil in your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Particularly welcome here to Langby Vineyard. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, and I'm delighted that you're here with us um, this afternoon. Um, we are going to continue our series in Matthew, um, one that's going to go on for around 18 months. Um, we're a few months into it, but what we've been discussing um, up until this point um, is around some of the teachings of Jesus at this moment in time. And this passage, as we've read, leans into this idea of prayer and how we pray. And two weeks ago, we had a week of prayer and fasting that was just absolutely stunning. And so before I go any further, and as I recover myself from the deep insult around my jeans, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in um, to what we have this morning. So let me pray, and we'll go from there. Um, Jesus, thank you that you love us. And I thank you that in moments like this, you long to encounter us and meet us exactly where we're at. And so as we open your scriptures, would you speak to us? Would it be life to us? Would it nourish us? Would it direct us and guide us? And so would you be with us? We pray, come Holy Spirit, dwell among us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Um, for those that were here the last time I spoke, which was around November time, I think, um, you'll have realized that I discussed uh, certain elements of my uh, fitness, personal fitness journey around CrossFit. And um, as a bit of a precursor around this, I'm not married and I don't have kids. And so I do CrossFit and have a dog. And so that's my only premise for illustrations when it comes to sermons. So um, you're going to have to get used to that for a little while. And, uh, and that's just the way it goes. But um, a few months ago, probably about eight months ago, I decided to start doing CrossFit. And the reason that I got into CrossFit was this whole idea that it wasn't particularly built around um, looking better or just appearing better, but it was about you understanding where you're at, taking steps day by day to better yourself, to become stronger and holistically more healthy. And it's all functional fitness. And so I decided to, to take it up and give it a go. And about two months into it, um, I was starting to get a hang of some of it. I was starting to get a little bit better as, as days went on and weeks went on. And I started to get a little bit like, more confident with what I was doing in those workouts. And I'm a competitive person, for those who don't know. For those who have played any kind of sports with me, you will know that. Um, I once made, this summer we were playing spike ball. I don't know if you know what spike ball is. I made one of my young leaders cry when she was my teammate in spike ball because we were losing. It was her fault. So um, I'm just confessing my... Uh, my sins in front of my community, but um, I'm a bit of a competitive person, and I came to this workout about eight weeks into it, and the workout was squat cleans. And so for those who don't know what squat cleans are, it's where you take a bar, you have a barbell weight on it, you clean it off the ground into like this kind of position, and then you squat. And as we've already discussed, I'm wearing skinny jeans, so I'm not going to squat, um, but that's what you do. And so in CrossFit, you have a suggested weight. It's, an, it's called RX. So it's the weight that you're told that you're doing CrossFit at. For everyone else in this room who does CrossFit, they're looking at me being like, you're such an idiot. Um, but it's a suggested weight that you run with. And so the weight for this workout was 42.5 kilograms. And the way you work up to it is you have a bit of skill and you warm up into it. So you lift some of the weights. You maybe lift heavier than what you're used to. And then you'll go into the workout and you'll do like a set weight. And that weight will be around reps and times. So you want to do as many reps as you can inside the time. And so the workout was squat cleans and then box jumps. So just imagine this amp, like 24 inches off the ground. And what you do is you jump two feet off the ground and you land the box, you come back down. That was the workout. It was seven rounds, seven movements of each of them. And I arrived at CrossFit and I've never done RX weight on a workout. I'm only I'm eight weeks in, so I've never done that before. And uh, something happened this week, that week at CrossFit. I arrived in and there was a full class and I was warming up, started doing the weights and I looked to the right of me and we were getting ready to do the workout, and there was a girl, right, who had 42.5 kilograms on her bar. And uh, something in me, some broken place inside me decided, challenge accepted. <laughs> it's like, you think you're gonna come in here and lift more than me? And uh, I know we can pray for me after, I'll, I'll happily receive it. And uh, I, I thought, you know what? This is your day, Chris. 42.5 kilograms, you're gonna do your first RX movement on a, on a workout, let's go. And so I loaded up the bar, and then this has never happened. Before work, it happens, the coach will come by and he'll make sure everyone's happy with their weight and what they're doing and what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. And class of 16 people, and the coach is like, Chris, you might want to do 30 kilograms, not 42.5. At that moment, I was like, you know what? You are a coach. You've been doing CrossFit for like five, six years. You know what you're doing. You're qualified in coaching this. I've only been doing this eight weeks. And for the eight weeks I've been, you've watched me do these sort of things. You probably know best. You know what? I'll swallow my pride. I'll drop 12.5 kilograms off my bar and I'll do it at 30. Was what I should have said. <laughs> and instead, I insisted on doing the workout of 42.5 kilograms. And I had a point to prove. So the first round, the buzzer went, 
and I went straight through the next seven, did the seven, but to be honest, I realized inside the seven that this was, this was pretty heavy. Like, I wasn't used to this. I was like, this is, this is not good. And I did my box jumps, and then I came to my next set of seven, and suddenly my speed just, like, went out the window. Like, it took me, like, I had to set myself to do them, and you're supposed to cycle it. It's supposed to be at a weight that you can do it fast, okay? So, like, I was not doing it fast. And then it came to the box jumps, and suddenly that lyric in the Hillsong song, Oceans, where feet may feel, came to like a reality. And I went to jump, I fully committed to jump on the box jump, and my feet just didn't work. Like they didn't move off the ground. And so I ended up hitting my shin off the side of the, the box. And then for some weird reason, I decided, quick, grab something that you can hold on to. And so I decided to try to grab the box. And I ended up like hugging it. And then in my gym, there's like a rig that runs around the middle of it, which is like a steel rig you do pull-ups and you use for set your bar on, all that kind of stuff, sitting on it. And I, when I landed on the box, I swung around, smacked my head off the side of the rig, and then threw the box, the massive box, into the rig. The only time ever I've experienced this in the eight months of CrossFit, everyone stopped what they were doing, was like, ooh, <laughs> not good. And uh, I... Uh, it was fair to say that the coach was right, and I was wrong, and I definitely got caught up in it in the wrong reasons. What has CrossFit got to do with this passage in prayer? The thing that went wrong in CrossFit is that I missed the reason why I started doing it. I missed the reason and the purpose and why I first decided to give it a go, why I first decided to keep, continue to do it. And suddenly my lens shifted off my own personal journey and onto what everyone else was doing around me. Suddenly there was something in me that thought, if there's a girl beside me who's half my height, lifting more than me, that can't, like, I don't want that to be an image that I'm bearing in that gym. And so some place inside me, the pride built up where I was more consumed of what other people thought. And even to the point whenever the coach said in front of the whole class, you should lower it, I still was like, no, I can't do it now. Like if I lower it, everyone's gonna be like, oh, Chris is so weak, look at weak Chris. And I don't wanna do that, but my focus came off the reason, the purpose, and the rationale why I was doing it, and on to other people. And this, as we lean into prayer, in this passage in Matthew, is exactly what Jesus is getting to the core of. See, what he is addressing is motive. Not the act of prayer, but the motive behind it. You see, the actual activity of CrossFit and the movements and all that kind of stuff was not the issue. It was my motive and my approach that went off skew. This is what Jesus is addressing. As we've already read in Matthew, in chapter six at the beginning, he couples together the practice of righteousness, then giving to the needy, and then further goes on to prayer and fasting. And he addresses these holistically and in the same way, if you read it, there's repetition, is that if we do it to be seen or noticed, if we're doing it to get the attention of other people, if it's based on perception, then we've entirely missed the whole point. Jesus is addressing our motives and therefore the conditions of our heart. And this passage starts off to a pretty strange intro. It talks about people standing on the street corners yelling their prayers as an act of showing off. And in my spare time, that's not what I do. If that is what you do, you might want to try CrossFit. Um, it's a good use of your time. Um, but that's not something I, I tend to find myself doing, and nor have I witnessed many people from Lang Valley Vineyard standing on Bow Street yelling their prayers out loud. You might find us praying for people on the streets asking them how they're doing, getting down to their level and praying healing, but you won't find us yelling our prayers, showing off in some kind of holy way. But this is where it starts. 
You see, prayer in this context was some kind of obligation. They did it three or five times a day. It was a structured obligation and ritual that they were to do. They were to follow it in order to earn something and earn their right. And Jesus used this phrase, he calls them hypocrites. It's, for me, when I read it, it felt a little bit abrasive, felt a little harsh. Hypocrites, if we look into the Greek, into the context in which we're speaking, it means actor or performer, interested in making an impression, catching other people's attention being seen. Eugene Peterson says this in the message on this passage of scripture, pray with simplicity. And when you come before God, don't turn it into a theatrical production either. All these people are making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you begin to sense his grace. You see, if we zoom out for a, se- for a second and we begin to look at what Jesus is addressing, of course we've said it, he's addressing motive and intention. But this idea of being seen is something that kind of leaks into our culture all around us if we look at it. The rise in social media, the rise in the popularity of the holy grail of celebrity status in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, it's all fueled by how people interpret us. It's all fueled by how people see us or perceive us. And for a lot of us, the metric of success is how we appear or how we appear doing it. What we're doing and how we're getting along with it. And the danger here, and the frank truth, is that it's pretty easy to be compelling from a distance. It's pretty easy to have a nice curated set of images with snappy, witty captions. It's easy to appear like you've got it all together. You're in control of it, you know what you're doing around it. But it's much more difficult to do it from a close proximity. You see, knowing a lot about someone is not knowing someone. I know a lot about Justin Bieber, probably a worryingly amount about Justin Bieber. Like his birthday, I don't know his birthday, but that would be weird if I didn't know his birthday. Um, I I don't, I swear, I don't. I'm being honest, telling truth, I don't. but I don't know him personally. I don't know like, what makes him happy and what makes him sad. I know his music and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know him personally. And the shift that Jesus is hinting to is away from praying to be seen and understanding that we can pray to be known. From seen to known. This was an off-the-wall teaching that Jesus was introducing. You see, we can know a lot about God. We can come to church, we can listen, we can engage in worship, we can read, we can listen to all the podcasts we want, we can know a lot about someone and we can know a lot about God, but there's a difference of knowing a lot about someone and actually knowing them. And that is the invitation that Jesus is inviting us into. And what he makes clear is that doesn't happen on street corners, it doesn't happen in crowds, you can't impress him as if he's sitting in a box seat. Jesus says it happens behind closed doors. And he's being dramatic in that phrase. He's saying it only happens with you and him. It only happens in the context of being alone with him. Behind a door is a way of saying, get with him alone. No distractions, you and God. True intimacy is built on a one-to-one basis. Known and being known. And communication is vital to this. Think of all of the flourishing relationships in your life. I'm pretty sure communication is key to it. And maybe reverse that. Think of some of the relationships in your life that might be on the decline. How much or how little 
is communication paying around that. And this is the exact same with our relationship with God. Jesus then shifts and uses this word reward, which I find so interesting. He says, your reward will be in full if you do it in front of other people. What is the point of prayer? What is the reward? As we've discussed, it's not being seen, but it's being known. And this is something that might be familiar to us as Jesus followers, the idea of God knowing us and us being able to know him. But I think it's something that we always need to be reminded of because of the waters we swim in. I came across this quote this week, which I, I think illustrates this so well. I'll read it out for you. This is about a, a missionary couple who devoted their lives to serving in Kenya. Back when Roosevelt was president of the United States, there was also a missionary couple that served in Kenya. They had served in Kenya for 50 years, and they were finally coming home to America. Consequently, they arrived home on a ship on the Saturday morning, and the president, Roosevelt, was arriving back from a one-week holiday on the Sunday afternoon. So the missionary couple arrived in, greeted by their only daughter, whom they were close with and stayed in contact with. That night, they had a lovely meal. They chatted, and then they went to bed. The next day, the president arrived in with his wife, greeted at the dock by 10,000 people, trumpets blowing and bands playing. This deeply grieved the spirit of the missionary man. He went home and went to God in prayer, pleading with him, how is it possible that one man is greeted home after a one-week holiday, but yet after serving for 50 years in Kenya, I was greeted by only my daughter. He pleaded with God. God simply replied, you're not home yet. We have already discussed, culture can confuse us and throw us about what really matters. Being known by one or being seen by thousands. Being known intimately by the God of the universe who created everything around us or just being observed by crowds. You see, our reward is our inheritance. What is our inheritance? It is as a child that we get to approach him like a father. See, through Jesus, the gap has been bridged. We get to now commune with God freely in conversation with him. We get access to the secret place, to be known by him and also to know him. We get to experience in that place of him one-to-one. We get to experience freedom, grace, love, mercy, peace. We get to experience breakthrough. We get to experience what our souls truly long for. It is in that space that we get to see God as not a lofty, headmaster who's angry with us, but one who's a father who approves of his children. We get to experience his goodness. He gets to put identity on us. This is the reward he talks about. A liberty away from performance, away from the pressures of culture and religious obligation, of rituals that attempt to earn our right standing with God, and instead we are introduced into family, sons and daughters. Jesus then shifts again and says, don't babble, don't use big words. I'm relieved at that because I don't know many big words. But these are people who practice praying to pagan gods, convincing God of their attention. If we read the Old Testament, we see stories of people literally cutting themselves, like gashing themselves to gain the attention of gods with a small G. And this was something that was stepped in their culture. A rabbi at this time who's famous was quoted to say that whoever is long in prayer is heard. This is something that is in the culture. Rabbis, wise people were quoting these sort of things. This was what people thought and assumed and also lived into. That prayer is somehow a way to manipulate God into certain responses. These people would wear themselves out with petitions that ultimately would lead to arguments, bartering with God to get his attention. They imposed a formula-like approach, this plus this equals that. And that might seem absolutely mad to us, and how would anyone do that today? 
There's a word for this. It's called superstition, not spirituality. Superstition. Eugene Peterson says this. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formalism programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall from this nonsense. This is your father who you're dealing with. And he knows you better. He knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving, you can pray very simply. You see, the purpose of prayer isn't to demand God's attention and somehow convince him not to overlook you. We don't have to do this. And verse eight makes it clear. The truth is that he knows what you need even before you ask it. There is an understated beauty that our Father in heaven knows exactly what we are gonna pray before we pray it. And yet he chooses to still listen. That he chooses to say, I will be present. A Father who knows us intimately and deeply not only gives us attention, but labels us as family. He doesn't want buzzwords or phrases. He's not impressed by theological statements. He doesn't want to hear empty words. He wants us to approach him as a son would a father. He wants your honesty, the highs and the lows, the disappointments, the celebrations, the little and the big. He wants us to be unapologetically ourselves before him. Intimacy is knowing someone and being known. And the truth is when it comes to our prayer lives, God cannot bless a well-polished, put-together version of us that comes before him. He can only bless the authentic, real you. That's the only thing he can bless. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is against regulations, he's against systems that rigorously order our attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Why? Because it villainizes God and it dehumanizes us. It turns God into a cosmic headmaster who we are convinced is annoyed with us and disconnects us from what we're actually supposed to be connected to. And suddenly we lose our way. He wants nothing to do with those regulations because rules and regulations tell children that what they do is more important than who they are. Rules tell children that what they do is more important than who they are. The thing that struck me two weeks ago as we journeyed as a community around prayer and fasting was that I came into it thinking that this was going to be like a great strat- like strategic decision as a church. We're going to devote time to prayer fasting, seeking God. We're gonna hear from him and therefore we're gonna know where to go. And if I'm honest, the thing that struck me the most about our week of prayer and fasting was that I realized that more than God wants our big prayers and all this kind of stuff, what he wants is our hearts. What he wants is our attention. Because he knows what gets our attention, gets our hearts, and he knows what flows from our hearts. And that's what he wanted. And I found myself completely undone, almost like a nostalgic feeling of going back when I was like 18, 19, and naively stupid for Jesus, doing crazy stuff for Jesus for wild reasons. It almost brought me back to that place and said, where did you lose your way? Where did you lose the simplicity and the joy in this? And I was extremely humbled by it. What strikes me about my dog, did I mention I have a dog? And uh, is that he has no awareness of how clean or dirty he is. And he also equally has no awareness of whether I'm wearing like a white t-shirt and suede boots. He also has no awareness if I'm about to go out somewhere and I'm dressed to go out. He doesn't have the ability to comprehend that. And he can't talk, so I can't tell him that. 
But what is so interesting about it is that regardless of where he's at or where I'm at, he will just run towards me. As soon as I come in through the door, he is like, he will run full force at me. A few times I've came in after CrossFit and he's ran at me, hit me, and I've literally fell over. Like he runs at me with such a force. But he just goes for me, runs directly into him. That is the approach that we're supposed to have. Regardless of where we find ourselves, the truth is that we have the ability to come into his presence on a one-to-one basis, exactly how we are. And the truth is that he would never have it any other way. So he longs for us to be connecting to him as a father and son and daughter. You know who get this best? We chatted about this before. Kids. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to kids pray before. It is stunning. We'll not be able to put this in the podcast, but we were at the week of prayer and fasting and someone, I found a prayer from one of our young people in, um, in Big Party, and it said, Dear God, please help Mr. Trump not be a poop head. <laughs> you can't put that in the podcast. But I wonder if you've ever listened to how they pray. It is simple and it is beautiful. And some of us, frankly, we laugh because we think it's cute. And it's almost as if us adults in here think that we have it sussed when it comes to things like prayer, right? Like we know how to do it. We know how to approach it and, and come at it. Um, here's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, genuinely one of my favorite quotes. I read it three years ago and it's stuck with me ever since. It's gonna appear on the screen. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they, think they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that, that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he is the eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Have our prayers gotten older than our father? Are we missing the beautiful simplicity of approaching him in prayer? And what I believe is that for some of us in this room, the maturing element of your prayer life, the flourishing element of your prayer life that you're missing is learning how to be youthful in prayer how to be childlike in prayer, how to be simple in prayer that will unlock a maturity and a depth that you've yet to encounter and discover. Dallas Willard says this, he teaches us in prayer, he teaches us how to be in prayer what we are in life and how to be in life what we are in prayer. Prayer for us is to be as natural as eating and sleeping and breathing, woven into the fabric of us as Jesus followers. You see, what would it look like for us as a community if circumstance what was happening around us didn't affect how frequently we prayed, but only how we petitioned and interceded. In other words, prayer was so ingrained into who we are, into our day-to-day existence, that the concept of adding or subtracting the amount that we prayed wasn't really a concept. Only how we prayed and how we interceded. As we mentioned before, the week of prayer and fasting did something significant. And what I don't want to happen for us as a community, what I feel like we are at risk of is just looking back on that week where we've seen God do amazing stuff. And where so many of you in the room were touched deeply with a profound sense of how much God loves you and wants to open up a future for you. 
if we just refer to it like the good old days, I think we've missed it. You see, when God moves or puts favor on something, it's because he's opening something else up. There's more happening than what we realize. And we can take this moment as an apple and enjoy it, or we can choose to take the apple and say, God, what are you doing and how do we steward it? And if we do that, and we put that in the ground, suddenly what we have is an orchard, not just a single apple. We're able to steward what God is doing. And what I feel like is happening in the undercurrents of our, of our community is there's something rising around prayer and intercession, and God is showing up around it. So what are we gonna do about it? Jesus then shifts again, and he mentions these components on how to pray. For some of us in the room, and if you've journeyed some time with Jesus, you'll know that there's seasons in life where you struggle, just, you just don't know what to pray. You come into him in his presence and you just don't know what to say to him. And he gives us a bit of an outline here, not just praying literally, but here's our, here are components in how to come to him in prayer. Firstly, he, he mentions our Father. We've talked about this before. Father and Son, Father and Daughter. This is the context in which we come into. You see, knowing where you stand will affect how you walk. And knowing who you're speaking to affects how you speak to them. And this is what he's saying. We are on a first name basis. You have access to me. He then moves on and says, hallowed be your name. It's the idea that God has set apart, that it puts us in our rightful place as child, but also as creation and him as creator, both as children to be cared for, but at the same time recognizing that God is in heaven and on the throne. It humbles us, but more importantly, it shifts our entire dependency upon him. Kingdom, you probably have heard us before if you've been around us for any matter of time. A spoken longing of God's will to come to earth. His will in heaven to be displayed here on earth. Our present reality looking more and more like heaven, unhindered by darkness. Heaven coming to earth. We see this when God shows up in demonstrations of healing or the prophetic, but this is so much more than just those moments. That we're to pray this and to welcome it. As we come into land this morning, I found myself stumbling in preparation around this. I felt like I had up until this point nailed by Tuesday, which is unusual for me because I'm usually last minute. And this idea of um, forgiveness that Jesus touches on, I just found that there was nowhere to hide around. It was um, abrasive and it was stark and it just felt like a, a jab out of nowhere that hit me to my core. And I went on a pretty big journey over the last few days, sitting with this, um, praying with him, asking what he wants to say, but I'll read, I'll read the passage and we'll, we'll dive in. For if you're, if you're to forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. It just hits different. He ends this section on what could seem like a less than positive note. He stresses the importance of forgiveness. And Jesus makes it clear that in the life of a Jesus follower, this is a non-negotiable. See, the truth is, each of us in this room are guilty of being the offended and also the offender. And he clearly says, if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us. Now, I wish I had a commentary that we could dance around that for certain aspects and certain elements. I wish I could make exceptions to that and all that kind of stuff, but the truth is, is it's, it's not gray. It's not like the behind the door phrase that Jesus used where he's elaborating to more. It's pretty black and white. It's pretty direct. It's pretty invasive. And it's pretty 
uncomfortable. And before I go any further, and before we sit in the tension of this idea of forgiveness, here's what I wanna say. I do not wanna undermine people's stories, journeys, and experiences in this room. But at the same time, I do not want to undermine the freedom that the Father has made available to us through forgiveness. And I want us to lean into that tension as we unpack that. Firstly, what is forgiveness? Well, if we were to look at that, let's look at the opposite. What is unforgiveness? Unforgiveness is a vice. Think about the scariest people you know. Even the scariest people you've heard of or read about or watched videos on. The scariest people you know. If you start backpedaling through their story, you'll be hard-pressed to find one who unforgiveness isn't a key role in it. It's something that is snuck in somewhere in their story. You see, unforgiveness is something that grows. Grows into bitterness, then often into anger, and then it leads us to sin. You see, it grows when we don't deal with it. Festers when we don't deal with it. Kind of an odd question that circulates the church sometimes is, can Christians have demons? And uh, John Member says, I don't know why I'd want one. They make really bad pets. Some of you've got that. And, uh, but what is true is that we can give ourselves over to influences and influences that can grow and decrease, that can rise and can fall. Paul in Ephesians says this, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down whilst you're angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Let's take a, a step back a little bit. Let's look at a little bit of the context here because this dovetails together beautifully the beginning of the day right? It's a prayer of intent. It's saying, before I set out in my day, here's the things that I want to acknowledge and live into. We can place that at the beginning of a day. It's a prayer of intention, a prayer to live redemptively, to be agents of change, to be the people who bring God's future into the present, to be the future people. And then Paul says, don't let the sun go down. That's at the end of the day. So what we can tell from morning and evening around this idea of forgiveness is that it's a short window. We are to be ruthless with unforgiveness and rapidly fast to extend forgiveness. And he talked about this last week when he talked about short accounts, holding short accounts around this. Why? Because the truth is unforgiveness marries us to the past. And as Jesus followers, we can do nothing about the past but we are implored to do everything through his power about the future. And we cannot be future people if we are married to the past. It doesn't work. See, unforgiveness is the proposal that eventually marries us to the past. See, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, unforgiving or, or better people can have a difficult time with healthy community. And the reason why is that Bitterness is only justifiable to the bitter. To, to the bitter. That old phrase, misery loves company. And uh, so often better people will gather with other better people to talk about what they're bitter about or who they're bitter towards. And uh, they'll discuss it together or they'll pray for them together, church. And uh, some cases these are called small groups. Um, <laughs> not in our case. But this can be what can happen. And in the kingdom, as a kingdom pr principle, here's what happens for bitter people their volume will rise and their influence will shrink. Their noise will increase, but their influence and impact will decrease. One of the things I've noticed through living in Northern Ireland is us as a culture are infamous of knowing what we stand against. And oftentimes I feel clueless about knowing what we stand for. And what that is, is noise. 
Here's what we're not against. Here's what we rage against. But no influence to change the future. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person feels the effect of it. It only affects you. It affects you, the health of your relationships around you, and virtually has no effect on the person who caused the hurt. It puts us in prison. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and then realizing that you were actually the prisoner. It's releasing you from that. You see, Jesus is so harsh, he is so stark, he is so direct around this because he knows the effect unforgiveness can wreak havoc in our lives and our communities and the people around us. If the band wanna come up. I know what you're thinking. We come to this point around unforgiveness and it feels like I've just skimmed over so much. It's just as simple as forgiving them and, and that's it. Maybe you're sitting here being like, Chris, if you only knew what I've went through, if you only knew my experience, my story, my past, what happened in my childhood, what's happening currently, if you only knew what I've walked through, you wouldn't be presenting this as that easy. You wouldn't be talking so freely about forgiveness as if it's just something that is simple to do. What I've learned about forgiveness is that it is entirely offensive until it's pointed at you. It is entirely offensive until forgiveness is pointed at you. And we don't have a revelation of how much God has forgiven us when we didn't deserve it or earn it. When we fully embrace that he's done something for us, he's forgiven us and called us child. He's called us son and daughter and there's nothing that we could do around that. When he says, whatever the mistakes that you've went through, I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. When we fully embrace that, suddenly we're able to give stuff away. You see, in the same way, free people, free people, forgiven people, forgive people. And forgiveness is way more about you understanding how forgiven you are than your capacity to forgive. There's way more about understanding that. And this passage swings back on itself because the only place where we experience that is behind the closed door in the secret place, you and God is the only place where you experience that. Not in front of a crowd, not seen by many, but known by your Father in heaven, every part of you. One of my favorite quotes is, love says, I've seen the ugly and I'm staying. In those intimate spaces with God, he sees everything. And he says, I'm staying. And I call you on a first name basis. I am proud of you and I love you forgiveness that wipes us clean and opens up a future for you. Forgiveness is not earned. And so we have no right to ask people to earn it for us. We have no right to. Now trust is different. Trust is earned. People oftentimes when they break our trust need to earn our trust back. I'm not saying forgiving someone is automatically trusting someone. Also what I'm not saying is forgiving someone is forgetting what happened. Some people would label that as emotional immaturity. That's not what I'm saying. But forgiveness people don't earn. We extend it. We didn't earn it, we received it. And so therefore they must too. Here's where I wanna land. Forgiveness is an internal decision, but without an external action, it's only a philosophy. 
this is not presented to us as Jesus followers as a philosophy that we are to embrace, but a lifestyle that we are to act out. It is in the fabric of our prayer life. It is in the fabric of how we are to pray and interact and commune with our Father. It's not a negotiable philosophy that we run with. It is a lifestyle that we are supposed to live into. And it requires external action. And so how do we do that? For some of us, we need to get behind the door. We need to enter into that place where it's you and God. And you need to hear him say you're forgiven, set free, son and daughter. To no longer have this idea that you're just someone that's seen, but to grasp the reality that he's a God that knows you and wants to know you and wants to make himself known to you. You ever try to hug someone who's like an awkward hugger? Like you fully go for the hug and they're like, there's a hand in the face and it's just uncomfortable. How often times does God come to us offering forgiveness and instead of us embracing it, we're like, oh, you don't, I don't think you understand what's happened. I don't think you've seen the whole picture here. Like if you knew, you probably wouldn't be extending this sort of forgiveness. I think there's something about Jesus where he's like, I don't, you keep saying this, but I don't remember it. It's removed. As far as the east is from the west, it is gone. Righteousness, right standing. I see you as a child. And like Oscar runs towards me, which is a weird analogy, I know. We are to run to, I don't have children, so. We are to run towards the father. He's like my son is my son. But I think for most of this room, really what the action looks like, and this is, this is hard, and I want to acknowledge that. And firstly, if you're in this room and you feel wounded and deeply hurt, there's stuff in your past that you can't make sense of, and you feel like you didn't deserve it, and it has a, had a massive effect on your future and what your life looks like, firstly, what I want to say is I'm sorry. I am so sorry. But what I feel like is the practice for us to step into living free. This is what this is about. This is a freedom thing. Is that we need to pick up phones. We need to text people. We need to call people. Not later. Like if you need to do it, we're going to walk into a moment of response. We need to go now. And so you are free to leave this room, stand in the foyer, stand outside when we're responding. And to tell that person, you forgive them. For some of us in the room, what we need to do is we need to begin to pray blessing upon those who have hurt us. That is hard. And it hurts. And the reason why it hurts is because something in us is dying that should die. When we do not forgive people, what we allow to do is something that is supposed to be dead, we end up protecting it. The whole narrative of scripture is life after death. There's something significant that comes after death. Do not protect what should be dead in your hearts. And it will hurt, let it hurt. It will not feel good in the moment. You'll not automatically feel this euphoric sensation of I've just stepped into freedom. But watch what happens as the interior of your hearts and lives shift and change. 
And I, I struggle with whether to say this or not and, and thought about it for a while, but I feel there's people in this room who the perpetrator of hurt and pain or the abusers of hurt and pain are now actually dead. And you're like, how do I even begin to bless that? The invitation from the Lord is to begin to pray blessing on their descendants, the children of their children. You wanna be radical by freedom, pray that they would lack nothing in Christ. Release yourself and be free and live free. Can't help but be haunted by what it would look like for a city that was rapid to forgive. Or more so, what it looked like for a city to have a deep, profound sense of how forgiven we are. How that would shift our day-to-day actions and moments. And so here's how we're gonna respond this morning. We're not gonna ramp this up. I wanna create a space, the whole narrative of what I've just shared on is this idea of getting behind the door and, and getting face-to-face with God. And I know we're in a crowd, but I feel like the Lord wants to do some business with some of us this morning. He wants to do some work. And so we're gonna stand and worship together as a community. I wanna make an invitation for you in, in that moment to respond in different ways. The first way is for you to ask God, show me how much you love me. Help me embrace the forgiveness that you've extended to me. For some of you, you need to be reminded of that this morning. You need identity restored this morning. For some of us, and this is gonna be hard, as I said, you need to leave this room and you need to pick up a phone or you need to walk across this room if you have to and tell someone in this room that you forgive them. I don't know what this looks like, it's getting messy, but I feel like God makes it really clear. There's not much time with this. It's influence that can grow and develop and freedom is available today, right now. Don't wait a minute. But I think for a lot of us in this room, and this is gonna hurt and this is gonna be hard, is that as we enter into worship, we need to pray blessing on those who have hurt us. Pray things that they would lack nothing in Christ Jesus. That love and grace and mercy would follow them all the days of their lives. Pray big prayers into it. And if it hurts, that is okay. Something is dying that's supposed to be dead and life is coming. And so that's how we're going to respond this morning. The band are going to lead us. It's you and God. Do whatever you have to do. And you have permission to do that. Let me pray. Jesus, we pray, come Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge that this is beyond logic or rationale or feelings. But I pray a collision right now that you would crash into the present, into this room. Heaven would invade it that people in this room would be known as forgiven and free sons and daughters. And Father, would blessing flow from this room and therefore freedom occupy this room. We pray, come Holy Spirit. 